guys, it's me, Layla Cheek, your host today. Uh, thank you for joining me on another edition of Ample Cause, our justification, and our Word Go uh, Kingdom Stories Bible Study. Um, today we are in Matthew 13, uh, verses 40 through 43, and it's um, day 5. I will read it to you. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire... So it will be at the end of age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They'll throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Okay, why don't you join me in prayer before we begin? Father God, thank you so much just for this time and for the study and for your word. Uh, thank you for showing us that you turn darkness to light and that you are our hope and our joy and that you give us everlasting peace. Um, may you use the study today to um, glorify you, um, to bring um, people near and far together to hear your word and um, help me to um, honor you and your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright guys, well, our first question is question. Our first question is question 12 and it says, From these verses, each plant's ultimate destiny relates to its identity as wheat or weeds. What does this parable reveal about God's judgment between believers and unbelievers? And, um, I think from the weeds and the wheat, we talked about before how, you know, they're kind of intermingled and we don't, we can't really tell the difference, um, between some of them sometimes between the false teachers and the real, um, true, uh, Christians and God, you know, kind of told, told them to, to, uh, grow together until the harvest. And so explainable in the parable that, um, the destiny of each one will relate to their identity, and God knows the true identity of, of each, and he will distinctly um, divide them into two categories. Either, you know, you are saved, you put your faith in Christ, or you're not, and there's only those two distinct uh, categories to fall into. Either you are or you aren't, and he will separate um, all humanity into those two camps based on um, that reality, and he is, you know, the ultimate perfect judge, and so he knows, um, the true heart of each person, and the true, um, um, reason, and rationale, and, um, realizations of each person, so there's no fooling him, and you won't be able to, you know, get a second chance, or have a, another time to profess faith, except for, you know, your time here now, and at the end of the age, when he separates them into camp, uh, It'll be too late, and he will judge you based on um, your true identity, whether you were a weed or a wheat, and he will um, distinctly separate them into those two camps. And eye-opening to know that this isn't just the church, but also, but the world, and that um, what you do with the gospel when you're presented with it, and with this good news, resurrection news, and, and the faith in Christ, and what you do with it matters, and ultimately... That's what you will be judged on um, at the end of age. 
And so with that kind of explaining the significance of that parable, um, there are some other um, verses that kind of tie into God was teaching me based on these two camps of the wheat and the weeds. And um, my opening prayer was kind of um, alluding into that and how prophecy that we had from Isaiah about darkness turn, turning to light and that um, the people were walking in darkness and have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And, you know, that was a prophecy in Isaiah that we, you know, see in the opening of, um, you know, Matthew and um, some other areas in the New Testament, how Gentilic regions have um, now seen this bright light and have this hope in, in Christ and in Messiah like the Jews had. And so how this hope was for the whole world and not just for um, the Jews, but for Gentiles as well. And Zebulon and Naphtali were very uh, Gentile um, heavy at the time when Jesus did come. And so this kind of um, was this prophecy of this great light dawning um, into this world of uh, darkness and spiritual blindness. And the prophecy in Isaiah actually talks about this Assyrian invasion that had happened and how they kind of were taking over um, a great chunk of the land and how that God would bring light from that as well. And that kind of ties into some of the verses that we have to go with this and it's just kind of neat to see how God mingles Gentiles and when I say Gentiles I don't mean necessarily Greeks but the people in the Old Testament were either you know followers of Yahweh the one true God as he revealed himself the Hebrews and the Jews ultimately and then there were other people that didn't know Yahweh and those were the Gentiles and so we don't know, know who the weeds and the we are, but you know, at the time we consider if you didn't know the one true God, maybe um, a weed. And so God was kind of showing me how he used Gentiles throughout um, scripture and throughout um, history into kind of weaving them into his perfect plan and his ultimate um, plan of salvation and how, you know, it wasn't this uprooting of them or we don't go and um, pluck them up because they didn't know Yahweh or destroy them, but how God kind of weaved them into his ultimate plan for for good. And my first verse comes from Second um, Chronicles 2, 5, when they're preparing to build the temple, and um, Solomon um, ultimately took over this. David was ultimately the one that wanted to build the temple, but he had too much bloodshed and whatnot, and God said, no, no, you won't be the one to build it for me, but your son Solomon will. And so Solomon was um, given this great task, and David helped prepare him before he died. He's like, you know, my son Solomon's inexperienced and young, and you know, he, this temple has to be great and, and amazing for God, so I'll help you furnish some of the elaborate things that go into this temple and some of the tools and um, equipment and furnishings that should be built with it. So on the temple I'm going to build, this is um, verse 5, it says, The temple I'm going to build will be great because our God is greater than all other gods. But who is able to build a temple for him since heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him? Who then am I to build a temple for him except as a place to burn sacrifices before him? Send me, therefore, a man skilled to work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, and purple, crimson, blue yarn, experienced in the art of engraving, to work in Judah and Jerusalem with my skilled workers, 
who my father David provided. So he was looking for skilled workers from all over the region to help build this temple. And he uh, eventually goes to, you, let's see, send me also cedar, juniper, and elkham logs from Lebanon. For I know that your servants are skilled in cutting timber there. My servants will work with yours to provide me with plenty of lumber, because the temple I build must be large and magnificent. I'll give your servants the woodsmen who cut timber 20,000 cores of ground wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of olive oil. Hiram, king of Tyre, replied by letter to Solomon, Because the Lord loves his people, he has made you their king. And he added, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who made heaven and earth. He has given King David a wise son, endowed with intelligence and discernment, who will build a temple for the Lord and the palace for himself. I am sending you Hiram Abbey, a man of great skill, whose mother was from Dan and whose father was from Tyre. He is trained in working in gold and silver, bronze, iron, and stone, wood, and with purple, blue, crimson yarn, and fine linen. He is experienced in all kinds of engravings and can execute any design given to him. He will work with your skilled workers, with those whom my lord David your father. So this man that he uh, appoints over this is a, a man um, who his mother's from Dan, was a, a Jewish tribe, and his father was from Tyre, a Gentile pagan region. And so he sends this man to him to work with us because he has great skill and he's very proficient in um, these engravings and working with some of these um, materials. And so God uses this talent of this Gentile, essentially, to help build his temple, this elaborate temple. And it wasn't just the Jews. In fact, the Jews didn't have this labor force on them. But he did get um, Gentiles to help build this temple of God's. And they were very skilled and proficient in the tasks that they uh, were given to do. They also were uh, given some wheat and barley and oil in exchange for it. Um, but he was specialized in these areas. And um, a joy for him to uh, invoke this work of God for this own temple and so it was a, a great joy to them and they were nonetheless blessed for helping to build this temple for for Solomon and for God and they uh, enjoyed the blessings of partaking in this great work and it was just a, a cool time to see that you know God used Gentiles and even um, non-Israelites to help build this great house this great temple for him and so we just see how God was using all that to um, build this temple for him. And the Jews, of course, were were more um, of the oversight and overseers in, in this case. And so everyone was very um, happy and, and um, grateful to come together and work on this great um, temple and project for the Lord. And I think it's just important to note that where this um, temple was built was um, in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where... Um, the Lord had appeared to his father David, and it was a threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. And so that um, Mount Moriah was kind of important because it's not only where um, David himself had offered sacrifices when um, the Lord had this, I don't know if you remember when, he took a census, and it was against um, God's command that he did that, and so the angel of the Lord was um, striking all the people 
and David's like, no, 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 I sinned, it was me, don't, you know, harm these sheep, what have they done, let your hand be against me, and so offered um, to offer sacrifices there, it was on an altar that he built there for the Lord, and it was actually on this um, Mount Moriah, and it was um, land that he got from um, a, a Jebusite who was a foreigner, and that was the same exact place that Abraham was sent to offer Isaac when um, he was going to sacrificially offer Isaac up on the altar there. And so that very spot marks the place where the turning point where that angel had uh, stopped the plague that was going to destroy um, Jerusalem and, and Israel. So that's kind of a significant turning point of stopping the destruction and of destroying Jerusalem from um, the plague that the angel was doing because of the census that David took in his uh, rebellion there. And so he had to buy this uh, threshing floor from um, a Jebusite who was kind of left over from um, Joshua's time and Joshua's um, conquest. And so David eventually conquered them and uh, he was still living there and had this land. And so David offered to buy it from him and you know wanted to buy it at a price that was very generous and and was going to offer it to him freely but he's like no a true offering and true sacrifice to god must cost me something so um he you know bought it from from him and so for 20 ounces of silver i think he said it was and um, that's where he offered these burnt offerings and so that was the significance of that of that place where now Solomon, his son, was building this temple. So it goes back to this Jebusite, this foreigner uh, who sold his land for this and his threshing floor for this offering, not only for, for David, but now for Solomon to build the temple there in that very spot. So it had a lot of significance and it goes back to this Jebusite uh, offering his land for that which again was a foreigner and a, and a Gentile who um, kind of chipped in here. And so just to kind of tie these all back to our original question about um, each plant's ultimate desti- destiny and the identity of the wheat and weeds and what it reveals about each one. Um, again, we see in Habakkuk um, 3 how Habakkuk has this prayer, you know, and He doesn't understand why God allows these Babylonians, these enemies of the Jews at the time, to invade and to um, punish Judah, in a sense, with with this enemy, with with these these enemies, with the Babylonians. And he doesn't understand um, why God would uh, allow, um, you know, a, a nation that was more evil than them and more wicked than them to... Um, punish them and why you know he would let this happen and so his complaint and his prayer you know is all about this and um, at the end of the day he says you know even though I don't understand what you're doing even though I don't you know really understand your works or why you would allow this or why um, you would uh, let these um, these enemies or these um, evil people um, over overtake us or punish us in the sense, you know, I'll still praise you, I'll still, you know, rejoice in the God of my salvation and, you know, it's um, the righteous one will live by 
by his faith. And so it's this goodness of God, despite um, how or, or who he uses and what happens, that, you know, it's, it's just by faith, the righteous one will live by his faith. And no matter what God does or or how he, you know, raises nations and punish nations or how he has um made what they thought was maybe like uh the weeds at the time used to punish um them um he still rejoices in in God and and praises him um even though he doesn't understand his works and he goes on to say that God allows Israel to get invaded with this cruel enemy and that despite willingness to um, accept us he will still rejoice in the Lord and as the joy of his salvation and he accepts God's will in that and he can now you know just confidently say that God is his strength and that he knows God will let him even higher in trust and obedience in that and that he completely trusts God's plan no matter no matter what and so um just how we see God using maybe um enemies or are the wicked or cruel um oppressors or uh nations or people or even you know what we would call our enemies sometimes God um didn't pluck them up or pluck them out at the time right he uses them even for his plan, even for maybe punishing or even um to you know put um um, Israel right with God again and to um, punish them with that nation then you know he would go back and punish the Babylonians for what they did to to them and so God uses all these people we are we you know as part of his overall plan and weaves them into a beautiful um, picture for his for his glory and ultimately you know that's what Habakkuk uh, realized in his prayer was that you know is by his faith that he will live and it goes back to God and the righteousness of God and just surrendering um his ultimate ultimate uh will to um God's will and God's sovereignty and you know at the end of that verse we see this little and this is kind of like a a, a song or like a dirge or like a a psalm he says that, you know, even though the fig tree doesn't bud and there's no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the field produces no food and though there's no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I'll rejoice in the Lord and I'll be joyful in the God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength and he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And so we just think, we just see how um at the end of this prayer of his he is like even though you know all is lost and there's you know like this time of famine and this time of no herds in the stall and no olive vine and no um no fig tree budding and no grapes on the vine and no olive crops sorry olive crops i guess um in the field and no food and no sheep and you know time of famine time, time of like ultimate loss right he's like still i will rejoice in, in the god of my salvation and be joyful in that and he's like he makes my my feet like a deer's and i'll just keep walking higher and higher in, in trust and obedience in, in him and the and ultimately going back to 
uh, chapter two of that where he comes to this conclusion that the righteous one will live by his faith despite what happens or what God does or who God uses to make what happen. And so it's just kind of like a good perspective. Um, sometimes even if we don't understand why, you know, there's evil in the world or why bad people flourish or why do the wicked always seem to flourish or why does God allow bad things to happen to good people or, you know, do these things happen? I think we always have these questions and we just see in times past how God uses all people and whether good or bad and and weaves them into his his purpose for his glory and ultimately you know can um use them for either punishing when we go astray or you know even to use after them invading them got you know punish the babylonians for that invasion so we just um gotta know that the righteous live by faith and is in, in god's goodness and in his goodness um alone and so we just kind of see, like, even from our Habakkuk example and other examples, how God kind of uses this natural disasters or natural allusions to nature or um, the elements sometimes to show his his power and his strength and his warrior-like presence in, in fighting for Israel or fighting for the church or fighting for for good over evil and... Genesis, if we go to the very beginning, Genesis 1, 1, 2, actually, he says that, you know, now the earth was formless, empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And we just see how God called light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So we just see how this um, light and darkness was separated at the very beginning from God. And how he said, let there be light. And there was light. And he saw the light was good. And he separated that light from darkness. And so we just see how he uses these um, natural uh, elements once again. And... Um, separates um, the light from the dark and how the people living in in darkness have seen a great light and how um, this light was kind of um, you know going back to the two camps again of light and darkness and how um, he separates them on the good from the evil or the, we have the story of Naomi who moved to this land of uh, Moabites, which was like this pagan um, land for a while, and she lost, she lost her husband and her and her sons, and so she was just with her two daughter-in-laws. But Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to aid of his people by providing food. There was a famine there, so now he um, had provided food for um, the Israelites again back in, in Israel. Um, she was determined to go back there to her home. And while she had lost uh, her husband and her sons, you know, those were the main providers at the time, if you had um, sons or husband. But she did not, so she just had her daughter-in-laws. So now he said to her two daughter-in-laws, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Her two daughter-in-laws, um, when Naomi heard in Moab that the 
Lord had come to the aid of her, his people by providing food for them. She and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home from there with her two daughter-in-laws. She left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, No, return, my daughters. Why should you come with me? I, am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there would be hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they are grown up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more better for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. So they wept aloud again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So one of them went back to the land of Moab, and uh, Ruth was like, no, I'm going to go with you to Israel. And now we kept telling her, uh, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, no, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go, and where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So we see that um, one of them went back to her gods and her people, and uh, Ruth was determined to go with Naomi at all costs, um, no matter what would happen, being this foreigner um, in Israel, where she probably wouldn't um, get treated that well, and um, might have been, um, you know, uh, frowned upon going with Naomi, but she was determined to go and to worship this God that Naomi um, had known, the God of Israel, is Yahweh, and to go at all costs with her there. And she didn't um, return, you know, back to to Moab or to her mother's house or to these uh, pagan gods that, you know, might have gave her a, a better chance at, you know, finding another husband and whatnot. And so we see with Ruth being this uh, Moabite, this this foreigner being brought into, well, ultimately the genealogy of Christ and the, you know, David comes from that lineage, but being brought into the the faith, so to speak, how she says, like, no, where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. It's a foreigner saying that to Naomi, who was an Israelite. And we see um ultimately... Um, and Hosea gets mad at his people. He says, you know, call Laruhama, like, I have no mercy on you anymore. And I'll not um, have any, uh, not love, I'll have no mercy on you anymore. And then call them Lo Ami, which means not my people. You're not my people anymore. I'm not your God. And then ultimately he ends it, uh, Hosea uh, one time by saying, Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. 
In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they'll be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together and they'll appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. So we just kind of see this ending there where eventually God says like, you know, I bring you back in, you will be children of the living God ultimately after this resurrection and once they're brought into the household of faith they'll then be part of this um, family and they will be children of the living God and this is kind of like the great irony of Ruth the Moabite you know telling Naomi like oh your your people be my people your God be my God and then you know they we see God saying to his people like you you're not my people I have no no mercy on you and, uh, you, you know, you, you are not a people until you'll be able to say that you are children of the living God. And we see, you know, coming back into the New Testament, Titus, Paul reminds us to, to be um, obedient and to remind people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, Always be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. The same is trustworthy, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good? These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So he kind of reminds us that we're saved to do good works. And he's like, remember, you know, there was a time when you were foolish and you were, you know, disobedient. You were deceived and you were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. And you lived with malice and envy and you hated people and you hated others. He's like, well, you were, there was a time when you were like that and God didn't save you because of anything good of, of you're doing or because of your own righteousness. No, he saved you because of his mercy and washing and, and the rebirth and the renewal by the whole Holy Spirit. And he's like, you know, remember that we have this hope now and that he saved us for good work. So don't forget, like you were at that time in darkness and you were, you know, living like this and, and disobedient and, and deceived and enslaved. So don't slander anyone. Live at peace, you know, with everyone. And be be considerate. And to um, be subject to rulers and authorities. And be obedient. And do, be ready to do whatever is good. And to devote yourself to um, these good works. Another area we see these um, separations. Um, back in Genesis, God said, you know, in the beginning... God uh, said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. 
He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning on the first day. And um, even before that, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Uh, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Well, we see how, you know, he created this light and separated the dark from the light and eventually um, called that day and, and night. Well, then when we go to Revelation um, 6 and some of the seals are broken, we see that when the fifth seal is open, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait just a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. And I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat's hair, and the whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from the fig tree and shaken by the strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from this place. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks and the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Who can withstand it? And so we see this contrast here at the end. You know, when the, the day of wrath of, of the Lamb comes and how the sun now is turned to sackcloth and is made completely black and darkened and the moon has turned blood red. Many of these uh, the days, the nights, the sun, the moon, these were given for not only just that much time and order, but you know, for, for festivals and for uh, remembering God's work and especially to the Israelites. And he says that in Galatians that um, formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brother and sister, become like me. For I became like you. You did me no wrong. And so it goes on to say, like, you're concerned about these, you know, elementary seasons and, and, and um, marks of time and these rituals and these festivals and all these um, things that were uh, enslaving you by the law and by these um, observances and assemblies that, that you practice. And he's like, do you want to be enslaved to those again? Do you want to be... Um, burdened with those again he's like you were slain by these things that were oh not god and you um, are known by god now and do you want to go back to those observing those special days and those months and those seasons he 
so now you know um in in Christ you know there's a new priest there's a new priesthood and you know it if perfection could came by the Levitical priest um and indeed the law given to the people established the priesthood why was there still need for another priest to come one in the order of Melchizedek not in the order of Aaron for when the priesthood is changed the law must be changed also he of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar for it's clear that our Lord descended from Judah and in regard to that tribe Moses said nothing about priests and what he said what we said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears one who has become a priest on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life for it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek this is um, Jesus they're talking about and the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced which we draw near to God. That all explains how, you know, the priesthood could have um, been perfected through Aaron and through these Levitical priests. We wouldn't need another one, Christ, you know, the, the ultimate great high priest and ultimate final priest. And we wouldn't have needed him to come through um, the order of Melchizedek, where, you know, he's this mysterious man from the Old Testament that Abraham um, gave a tenth to for the first tithe, and, and he was this um, king and this priest. and and he kind of had no beginning and, and no end. And and so um, we wouldn't need another priest to come in that order that wasn't, you know, from an ancestry or a tribe. But um, Jesus did. And, and um, he's a high priest forever. You know, there's no no end to his priesthood. He's saying, like, if the Levitical priesthood could have established that, we wouldn't have needed another priest to come that is perfect in that sense. And doesn't need to make uh, offerings for himself. And that is why Christ Jesus came. So the law made nothing perfect. And you you know, these regulations and all these observances and these things that you practice are, are weak and they're, they're useless. And that just kind of reminds us of, you know, Peter when he seen that vision in Acts 10 of this all white cheating down from the heavens he was hungry and he was praying on the rooftop and God showed him this white you know blanket full of all these unclean animals and all these things that would have defiled him as a Jewish man and God told him rise Peter kill and eat and he's like oh surely not Lord I've never eaten anything impure or unclean but the voice spoke to him again a second time said don't call anything impure that God has made clean and this happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back up to heaven and while uh, Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision the man sent by Cornelius found where Simon's house was stopped at the gate who had called out asking if Simon was um, Simon who's known as Peter was staying there so we see how God kind of showed Peter in this vision that hey uh, now all these animals are, are clean to eat I deem them clean, and so are Gentiles. You can eat with them now. They're no, they're no longer um, to be separated from you, and there's no longer this distinction between 
clean and unclean. And so not only do we see this distinction of the wheat and weeds of the end time, but God's like, hey, I got rid of this distinction of clean and, and unclean and, and Gentiles being unclean. They're not unclean anymore. And these foods aren't unclean anymore. Uh, rice, kill and eat, Peter. Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. And he said it three times. So at this point, he deemed um, Gentiles uh, clean and they could uh, eat together now. And, you know, this um, separation that they had, this wall of hostility that divided them was no longer there. It was broken down when, when you know, Christ uh, resurrected. And so he's like, there's no longer the separation between Gentiles and Jews. Like, I tore down that dividing wall of hostility. You know, they're deemed clean now. Don't call them common. And same with all these these foods that, you know, before you had to stay away from it. And it kind of um, was to make you uh, people separated from the rest and to make you people holy unto the Lord. And it was to kind of be like, you have um, special laws, special rules that God had g- given you. So you're different than the people of the other nations around you. You're separated from them. And these kind of um, were certain regulations that stick out from them and, and set you apart from them. But he's like, no longer um, do you have these or need these. Now, you know, you're made a holy people through Christ Jesus. Now, you know, you're a royal priesthood now. You're a people. And so he's kind of getting rid of these um, distinctions, these separations, these um, common versus uncommon and clean versus unclean within the Jews and Gentiles. And so it's important to not mix that up with um, the weeds and, and the wheat. Ultimately, anyone who puts their faith in Christ is considered uh, clean and, and holy and righteous before God. I think another theme that we see constantly throughout um, the Old Testament especially is just kind of how God is um, going to judge all nations and um, whether they're you know, evil or good and, and, you know, give everyone according to what's done, even as, um, nations as a whole. And we see kind of, um, uh, God's judgment on, um, well, not only the nations around Jerusalem and Israel, but, um, also on Jerusalem itself. And he tells them in Zephaniah 3, you know, woe to the city of oppressors, this rebellious and defiled city. She evades no one except no correction. Um, she doesn't trust in the Lord and she doesn't draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions and her rulers are evening wolves. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled and they're treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. But the Lord within her is righteous and he does no wrong. Morning by morning he dispenses his justice and every new day he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. And then it goes on to talk about like Jerusalem and its unrepentance. And then at the very end, there's this restoration, this hope uh, for the remnant of Israel. And God kind of tells them like through this um, Zephaniah, this prophet, that, hey, you're a rebellious and, and polluted a city. You're in disobedience and you don't trust God and he's going to judge your sins. You um, are violent and wicked and the priests have polluted this privileged city of God and defiled it and the 
people's perversity just increased despite um, seeing how God judged and even overthrew other nations around them. It was like they just, they just didn't even care. They continued their corruption and their evil deeds. And finally, Judah's told that they must wait on God and his day of wrath and his anger uh, will come. And not only um, on the ones that, that know him, but also on the, there will be like a, a remnant that will be saved and see him judge all the other nations. And so this remnant in this um, restored city and this hope that they have is kind of what we see a lot in another Zephaniah 3 where he says like, Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He'll take great delight in you, and in his love he'll no longer rebuke you, but he'll rejoice over you with singing. I'll remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and a reproach for you. And at that time I'll deal with all those who oppressed you, and I'll rescue the lame, and I'll gather the exiles, and I'll give them praise and honor in every land where they have been suffered, they have suffered shame. And so because this gathering, this regathering of this remnant and God promises like this restoration for them in, in meekness and, and trust and humility and, and um, peace and, and rejoicing and, and love and salvation. And um, they'll praise uh, God for it and for his great works. And um, all the people that held captive or oppressed will finally re- return and be um, restored. And so we kind of see... God's uh, just judgment on all nations to Israel and even on Israel itself and even on um, Judah. And so God's judge, judgment is is just and he um, will give um, all nations according to um, what they deserve. And then going back to our, our original question of the destination of the wheat and the weeds, we see again in um, Jesus' uh, farewell uh, discourse how he kind of um, reminds his disciples of his departure that's coming and that um, he starts, you know, washing their feet. And he tells them um, that he's going to be glorified. You know, the Father's going to glorify him now um, at the time. And he says, uh, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so that you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And so Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Just replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your li- your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you'll just own me three times. And so we kind of see how um, there's this distinction and this difference between, you know, these two groups. Not only the ones that 
well, for one, he says, like, no one can follow me right now. No one can come where, I, where I'm going. You, you can't go there now. And it wasn't ultimately until, you know, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in them. And um, ultimately, um, the difference between the, the two groups that, you know, we're, we're clean and just need the, the foot washing. And Judas, you know, not all of you are clean who need his whole body washed, right? And so that's um, kind of the difference between um, the ones that could follow him and the ones that couldn't. And he said, like, you, you know, the disciples, you know, you, you guys are clean. You're, you're clean, you just need your feet washed. And he said, like, you're my like, little children. You will follow me. And that's sometimes, you know, not only a term of endearment, like now you're, you're in this family, you partake in this relationship like, like me and the father have. Like, I'm the son and the father. Now you partake in this as well. And in this um, children talk of, like, now you are um, part of this and... and love one another as I have loved you and now not only like as the father loves the son but now you also being children and part of this um uh, family of faith and this household of faith now you know like you partake in this um this love that you know existed between me and the father the triune um perfection of it and so now it's um ushered in in this new um radical way love each other now that the same way that um, I have loved you, and, you know, kind of mimics the, the father and the son. And also, you know, turn that often rabbis and, and their disciples might have called each other. You know, sometimes the rabbis refer to their disciples as, as children and vice versa. And father, they would um, call the rabbis. And so Jesus kind of brings all that into this full circle here as he t- tells them, like, okay, you can't follow me now, but you will you will follow me. You know, wait, wait for the Holy Spirit to come and... And then, you know, like little children, you, you will follow me. And ultimately, you know, they will know that you're my disciple by the way you love each other. And, and this is like the new commandment that I give you that uh, to love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one, one another. And uh, that kind of um, brings that into full perspective there just as this glorification is going to happen and God was going to glorify him and, and, and the son and um, how this new radical way was going to be ushered into the scene and you know Peter of course doesn't understand you know like why why can't we go where you're going where are you going you know he's like you'll follow me later you know you gotta wait for the Holy Spirit to come and empowered by him and it's like why can't I follow you now I'll lay down my life for you and Christ reminded him like Will you really lay down my life for me, Peter? You're just only three times before the rooster crows. Like, you don't understand that, you know, what you're saying right now. But just the difference between um, the two camps here. Again, we see the ones that just need the, the, the foot washing versus the ones that were completely um, um, unclean. And not unclean in the sense of a, a Gentile, maybe, but unclean as Judas, who was going to betray Christ and and you know that washing wouldn't uh, enough for him and you know we see how that separation is is there with this uh, betrayal and this you know he draws out Peter's uh, denial of him but um, ultimately worldly repentance versus godly grief and godly repentance and how oh, every fruit that's not pruned you know is cut off and Jesus is one of those fruits that is is cut off whereas Peter is uh, a pruned branch and. You know, he has this godly um, 
repentance, whereas Judas had worldly grief that led to himself hanging himself over over just um, worldly grief, but not this repentance rooted in God, where he truly was wanting to be restored like uh, Peter was. Uh, we just kind of see once again how each one's destiny does kind of build off of that, and how um, this new commandment that Christ gives us in this term of endearment, uh, this children, as he calls them, and, and how they will they will follow him. But right now, they couldn't go where he's going, but now when you get this Holy Spirit empowerment, then then you will, and then then you'll be able to and then just come out the heels of that uh, foot washing and who can follow Christ and who clean in the sense of, um, you know, uh, saved and having the Holy Spirit that's going to indwell them. Um, we kind of see that again in Titus, this, this picture of God's elect that comes up a lot. And it starts the, the epistle by saying, like, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time and which now at the appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of, the, of God our Savior to Titus my true son in our common faith grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So we see not only um, this uh, introduction by Paul, but also just how it kind of touches on the God's, God's election before the um, the foundation of the world, this promise that was made in appointed time, the appointed season he has uh, brought to light and, you know, addressed Paul with this, this teaching. And he has this son in the faith, Titus, offers us the grace and peace of God too. And um, he goes on to say to uh, how to uh, appoint elders in these churches. And he says, appoint elders who love what is good. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to a charge of being wild and disobedient. Since the overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable and one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. And refute those who oppose it. So Paul's telling Titus, you know, these are how you need to um, appoint elders. And it's very important that you choose elders that have these qualifications. They can be spiritually mature and godly men and have these characteristics in them. And the reason being is because, you know, they need to be able to defend the message and defend the truth. And if you're lacking these errors, you're not going to be able to rightfully uh, defend it what's right and true and especially the truth of the gospel message and you know sometimes they're the most rebellious ones or the most um cunning ones or sometimes um do their work internally in the church and not necessarily externally and so you know you gotta be on guard sometimes of the um internal wolves and sheep's clothing sometimes and he tells them to make sure that they're not um deceiving they're not self-seeking 
false teachers. Many, you know, the Jewish legalists at the time um, were in there to be opposed and rebuked so that, um, you know, they have this uh, sound faith in God and that the Jewish fables and man-made commands and these um, Jewish heresies um, weren't passed down, but they were um, to be opposed. And so these false teachers and wickedness and self-seeking, materialistic, disobedient lifestyles would disqualify them and would allow them to be um, appropriate uh, elders. They need to not only profess God, but show it by the way they live and show it by the way they rightfully handle these things. And he says that, um, you know, to make sure that they hold on to this trustworthy word. They are to be rebuked, if, if not so. And the next passage goes on to talk about, you know, rebuking those who fail to do good. And there's many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception. And so it's important, important to distinguish between some of the legalists and um, what they're passing down this false teachings, maybe, or these legalistic views or Jewish myths that were merely human commands and those that um, reject the truth because to the pure, all things are pure. But those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. And so, you know, these qualifications were um, very um, important. And he wanted to make sure that churches are enough right and were right, right? And to make sure there's high standards, especially for those in these elder positions because we can't have people that weren't able to uphold the gospel message and the purity of it. And they need to be sound in the faith and rebuke those that didn't. And so, you know, this appointing of elders was very, very important. And God sometimes appoints his own elders in these positions, whereas man might come and undermine that and appoint elders as well. So it's very important to see, you know, grace and peace to you, Titus, my true child in the faith and direct them on uh, how to do that. And going back to our Word Go uh, question guide, our day five second question is uh, number 13. How might the promised blessings and the sovereign truth in this parable impact how you interact with the people around you? And one thing God has really been showing me, especially in my own life having to deal with maybe like someone that betrays you or maybe you know people that you you know God says to love your enemies right and to bless those that curse you and so you, you, they're enemies in the sense that they might um, be enemies of God's work or the things that God is doing but um, ultimately and maybe doing you some harm and knowing that you know beforehand and knowing you know Jesus knew uh, that Judas was going to betray him, and he knew that Judas was a a betrayer. Yeah, he still chose him, and he still called him, and he still, you know, told him to, hey, follow me. And he sat at his feet those three years and learned from Jesus. And he still knew, you know, what Judas was going to do, and it was to fulfill Scripture as well. But uh, one thing that Jesus, God was showing me that through that is that, you know, how do you... How do you still have this um, peace that transcends all understanding? How do you still uh, be at peace in those situations and that 
does transcend transcend the understanding of that and he kind of showed me you know what you just said that you call me teacher and lord and rightly so for that is what i am now that i your lord your teacher have washed your feet you also should wash one another's feet i have set you an example that you should do as i have done for you verily truly i tell you no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And so not only, you know, are we to serve and, and wash the, f- the feet of our um, enemies, right? Or those who are um, opposed to us and, and uh, what God's doing in and through us. But also, um, before that, he says... Um, Oh, after that, I'm sorry, when he predicts his betrayal, he says, I'm telling you now, so he's, he tells them that, uh, I know, you know, those who have chosen and the time uh, scripture will be fulfilled that he who shared my bread has turned against me. So he knows that whoever, you know, ate, ate this uh, intimate meal with him will be against him. And I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very, very true. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. Whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after he said this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Is that line really stood out to me the other night when I was just meditating these verses? And he was telling me, like, you know, this is how. I wash your feet. I give an example. Now you go do likewise, right? You'll be blessed by this. And I knew Jesus was going to be, or Jesus was going to betray me. I knew he was a betrayer when I chose him. But, but whoever, you know, accepts anyone I send, accepts me. And whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. So not only did God send Jesus, right? But, but Judas as well. And he has to accept them as that. So in my case, you know, even though there might be someone that's um, against you or opposing you or doing you great harm, you have to accept them as sent from God. And you have to accept them as being there because God put them there. You have to see God's sovereignty in it and God's plan in it and God's purposes in it. So God was telling me, you know, like accept him as one who was sent from me. And, and, you know, and Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And, and he testified, you know, he's like, one of you is going to betray me. And it, it hurt his heart, you know. But God was just kind of showing me, like, hey, that that's the weeds and the weeds. Weeds and the wheat, yeah, they're going to grow together. And, like, yeah, you might even um, knowingly have someone, you know, in, in your intimate circle that betrays you or does you wrong or does you great, great harm. And what do you do with that? And how do you treat people like this? And our, you know, question says like, what? Um, how about the promised blessing and the suffering truth of this parable impact how you interact with other people around you? And Jesus says like, hey, you accept them as I send them to you, and accept them as coming from me. And that's that's how I did it. I gave you this example. Now go go wash feet, and you'll be blessed to do this. So that was just kind of um, what I was trying to put into practice. And I, and I think I did. I think I do. But sometimes your heart, you know, might not follow 
even though foot washing. And so I just want my heart to be right in it too, like truly bless those that curse you, you know, and truly have the heart there as well and make it be a true offering before God, you know. And I was just trying to figure out how how do I get my heart there, Lord? Like what what do I um how do I do that? How what am I supposed to think about this? How am I supposed to feel about this? How am I supposed to react to this, you know? And so that was just kind of what he was showing me. And then also, going back to these, how do we treat people that, you know, knowingly that wrath of God will come in the end. And we know that um, each plant's ultimate destiny is going to relate to their identity, right? If they're a weed or a wheat. And so knowing that truth, how do you... um, treat believers and unbelievers and knowing God's judgment will come and then also you know the second question is uh with that truth how how does that affect how the how you interact with those around you and how you interact with people and so that was a great example with Judas there and Jesus' own example of that but also um when the first uh believers were starting to be formed in the first church you know the Holy Spirit fell down very powerfully um in the first few chapters of Acts there at, at the Pentecost, and believers um, were being made in great ex- extraordinary numbers, like Peter gave this sermon, and um, and let's see, it was like 3,000 believers came to Christ that day, when he kind of just stood up and testified and kind of um, went back to scriptures and told him how this was being fulfilled, and, and this is um, the fulfillment of it, and so God's grace was working very, very powerfully and very mightily with the the onset of the new fall. The Holy Spirit and believers just added to them in numbers um, in extraordinary ways. And so um, that was actually when, you know, they said like the first church was what? It wasn't like a corporate building, but they kind of had um, all things in common. And so no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It was kind of like this big open, you know, everyone shared what they had. You need something, I'll meet your need. I need something, you meet my need. We're all one. Like, we shared everything we had together. No, There was no need among them. And they're testifying to the, the powers of, with great power, that the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that all that they were in need, all that there were no needy persons among them. For from the time, time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. So we see um, how uh, they were selling their land, selling their fields, selling anything, any possession they had. Just brought the money in, you know, these offerings for anyone who had any need and to divide it up and share it and share it you know, your needs with whoever had a need there and just how um, the power of the Spirit was working mightily there. And so, all to say that, okay, so how do we treat people knowing that this reality of uh, the identity of each person is um, based on their wheat and their weed status and what they uh, ultimately choose and their destiny will be accordingly. And so, we see this example here with new believers and so what really stuck out to me in this passage was that uh god's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them 
And it really goes back to God's grace and the power of God's grace and how God's grace allowed them to do that and the power of his God's gra- of God's grace in that moment. Because nowadays we don't have necessarily church like that and we don't really design church to like, okay guys, we're not having any walls in our apartments, knock down the walls, we're all living in this big, you know, open parking lot and share what you have, you know, care for each other. Like that's not how we have church anymore, you know, it's very special and unique to that time period when it started and, and obviously, you know, um things might not be handled well if that continues on but ultimately um uh god's god's grace uh, was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them and so it just goes back to god's grace and how it moves and how it can move mightily at times and how it relies on you know my prayer too and persecutions always been like god i need faith give me the faith and he does and he gives you the faith you need in those times and even his grace you know it's not from you you need his grace and you need his grace to be generous sometimes you need his grace to love sometimes you need his grace to sacrificially um abandon sometimes and sacrificially give sometimes and sacrificially um um maybe uh show grace to to your enemies or show even uh love to other disciples so ultimately you know how do we treat others in view of that is we need god's grace and we need god's grace for um everything we do and ultimately you know it's his grace that we rely on and the more of his grace that you know we know and realize we can extend to others as well so just be mindful of God's grace for our reaction and how we handle both the weeds and the weeds you know God's grace God's grace is here and then um ultimately to um At times, you know, God was very angry uh, with his people and he abhorred his inheritance. He said, like, this is God's inheritance. We had people of his own possession. They were God's inheritance. And sometimes we think of our inheritance. But no, this is God's. And they were his people. And all who um, come to him are, are his inheritance. But he says, he gave them into the hands of the nations and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion. They wasted away in their sin, and yet he took note of their distress. And when he heard their cry for their sake, he remembered his covenant. And out of his great love, he relented. He caused all who held them captive to show them mercy. Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. And that's Psalm 106. We just see how, as an example, how God, you know, oftentimes gave the Israelites over to the nations. And that was kind of the beginning of this lesson, too. We've seen it over and over again, how God let some of these nations still be around and um, use them uh, to kind of redeem 
store the people back to him and to also um, have them cry out uh, for their deliverance from God, from a true heart. And he said, like, you know, their enemies oppress them. They subjugate them to their power. Many times he delivered them. And they wasted away so bad. But he took note of their distress. He hears their cry. And because of his covenant with them, right? Well, I think that they did. They broke their promise. But because of his covenant with them, he remembered. And he showed them mercy. Um, uh, and he let the captives show them great mercy as well. And so now they're crying out, save us, Lord God, and gather us from the nations. And they praise him ultimately for his glory and for his remembrance. And even, um, how do you treat those nations that oppress you and subjugate you to them and, and do these evil things to them? And we know God says, like, I'm sovereign, I let this happen. And yes, I'm over this in a time. And, um, you know, it was in my hand. I heard I heard when you cried out, and I did rescue, rescue you. But, you know, we see examples in Babylon in Babylon in Jeremiah's time and they said like what are we to do while we're in Babylon and he said uh, this is your enemy uh, territory that you're in now you're captive there and you're taken as a captive there but he said um, um, for this is what the Lord Almighty says about the pillars of bronze sea the movable stands and the other articles that are left in the city which Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon did not take away when he carried away Jehoiakim and son of Jehoiakim king of Judah into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon along with all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem yes this is what the Lord Almighty the God of Israel says about the things that are left in the house of the Lord and in the palace of the king of Judah and Jerusalem they'll be taken to Babylon and there they will remain um, until the day come for them declares the Lord to restore them back to this place so, um, he, there's a prophet that was trying to tell him lies. He tried to tell him, hey, uh, serve the king of Babylon and you'll live. Serve him, serve him, and you'll live. That's how you can live here. Why should the city become a ruin? And if, um, you know, if, the, if not, you know, you'll plead to the Lord and he'll, um, re- rescue you. The prophets have the word of the Lord. Let them plead with the Lord Almighty. That the articles remaining in the house of the Lord and in this palace of the king of Judah and Jerusalem not be taken to Babylon. And God, you know, tells them, like, hey, I will ultimately restore you, but don't serve the king of Babylon. That's a lie, you know. And so don't serve their kings and don't, um, you know, worship other gods or, you know, have these idols. But he says, I will restore you. I will uh, um, come back and and bring back all these articles, and I'll restore them to this place. Otherwise, in Hosea, he says, My God will reject them, because they have not obeyed him. They will be wanderers among the nations. So God said, He will reject you if you do not obey him. And you'll be a wanderer around among the nations. What happened to um, Cain, right? He became a wanderer. And he's supposed to just be kind of like a nomad. Not have any uh, true settlement. So God will ultimately reject or restore. But he says, like, hey, don't believe it when you say, look, here's the Messiah. Or look, there he is. Don't believe it. 
Because there are going to be all kinds of false messiahs. False prophets will appear. They'll perform signs and wonders. And they'll deceive. If possible, even the elect. Even those elected. They, if it was possible, that's how good they are. They would deceive them. So be on guard, he says. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, it's going to be distress, it's part of life, right? Distress is promised. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, all the people will see this. At that time, the people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He'll gather the elect from the four winds. So we see that there's going to be false uh, messiahs and false prophets rising up, and they'll say, Look, he's right here. Go go here to see him. And look, he's right here. Go there to see him. He's like, be on guard. Don't believe it. Because, you know, for one, you won't have to go somewhere to see him, right? But Messiah's going to come in the clouds and everyone will see him in the sky, you know, and be with great power. And you'll see him from right where you are. You don't have to go somewhere to see him. Look, he's over here. No, don't believe it. These are false messiahs, false uh, prophets and they'll appear and they'll perform signs and wonders and they'll deceive people and if it was possible to deceive the elect they would uh, deceive even them but God said no no it's by my, my grace I keep you and I don't let you be deceived but he said to be on guard against this I told you this in advance so that you know uh, not to believe it when it happens and he also said that there's going to be a uh, Love distress, and you'll see it in, in the heavenly bodies as well. So make sure you um, know that. Don't just follow anyone that says to you, look, here's a Messiah, there he is. Because that would uh, not be true to scripture. You'll see him yourself. You don't need to go somewhere to go see him. Um, there was another time when um, Felix, who was well acquainted with the way... So he heard of uh, Jesus and and um, the way that was uh, the Nazarene uh, sect at the time before it became full blown Christianity uh, adjourned the proceedings. And when Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, "I'll decide your case." He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife Drusilla who was Jewish. He sent uh, for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul, it was like a Bible study he was doing right in front of him almost, and in front of him and his wife. And he listened to him, and he spoke about the faith in Jesus Christ, and as Paul talked about righteousness, about self-control, and about the judgment to come, Felix became afraid. And he said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find out, um, when I find it convenient, I'll send for you. And at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him some kind of bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. And then when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So that was just kind of like, um, you know, this, uh, tragedy that happened to Paul in the sense that you know he was taken to Rome and, and you know switched to all these prisons and there happened to be this uh, ruler that was uh, Felix he, he was acquainted uh, with the way and he heard about it 
and um, he brought his uh, commanders there, and he wanted to decide his case. And the next day, he came with his wife. He brought his wife even to hear Paul, because he was intrigued by what he was saying, and he was inspired by it. And um, he heard Paul, and Paul was speaking about faith in Jesus Christ, and he was speaking about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. And when he heard these things, he became afraid. His heart struck him, you know. He, he said, okay, okay, that's enough now. But he, he often convened with him. He liked uh, listening to him. He liked um, hearing these things and often conversed with him. And he was hoping that, you know, Paul would offer him some kind of bribe. So he sent for him frequently. But he talked with him. And finally, you know, lo and behold, two years had passed. This new king was coming in. This new um, guy that hadn't really um, known of of what was going on in the situation. And he, uh, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And he didn't understand what happened in this period's case, but he just wanted to do the Jews a favor, so... Uh, he left Paul in prison. I think that's, um, kind of the tragedy of it. He didn't ever free Paul and just kind of left him in prison because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. And ultimately, you know, um, it was costly to Paul. And, you know, Paul was here spreading Christianity, but he, you know, thought he was doing, um, a favor to the Jews by leaving him in prison. And then, um, ultimately, God promises in Isaiah that my spirit who is in is on you will not depart from you. And my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children, on the lips of your descendants, from this time on and forevermore. And he says, that is my covenant with them and this is the redeemer who will come to Zion um, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins this God's promise to um, Israel and he says like when you repent I promise to put my spirit on you and I promise not to ever depart from you and your words or my words will be on your mouth and they'll be on your children's mouth and your children's children's and this um, holy uh spiritual uh, tradition and holy covenant will be passed on um, forevermore. And going back to our question about um, the plant's uh, ultimate destiny. Destiny relates to its identity as a weed or a wheat and um, what that parable kind of reveals about God's judgment between believers and unbelievers and how we see kind of um, God's wrath and um, also his great mercy and his um, grace and how, you know, he ultimately desires that none should perish. And he broke down many walls and barriers and um, kind of, um, you know, reinforces uh, grace alone, faith alone, concept that whoever um, puts their faith in him uh, will be saved. And we see that again um, during Jesus' early ministry when um, he uh, was healing the official son. And it says that after the two days he left uh, for Galilee, now Jesus himself had a, uh, pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. 
They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee. Remember, that's where he um, turned the water to wine, at the, the first sign he did. And um, where he turned the water to wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. This was a, a nobleman, a royal uh, official, maybe Herod's kin or um, somewhere uh, related to him. And uh, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come heal his son, who was close to death. And we see this, you know, he, he was a Jew because obviously Jesus goes on next to say, unless you people see signs and wonders, uh, you'll never believe. And the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. And so, you know, he obviously was familiar with the first sign that Jesus did with the water to wine at the wedding. And, and you know, he Jews were the ones to seek signs, right? And so he came maybe to look for these signs and these wonders. And Jesus, you know, rebukes him at first. And was like, unless you guys see signs and wonders, you will, you will never believe. But this nobleman, this royal official says, Sir, my child's going to die, please, you know. And he pleads with Jesus, you know, being this great physician, our, our ultimate healer, and, and, and some, you know, belief and faith in, in Jesus as this, this um, healer and this physician and, you know, the mighty works that he can do to heal even his son at his word. He says, go. He replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time that his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. And this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So not only does the royal official um, take Jesus at his word, but he, you know, really believed that Jesus could heal his son and that he was a great physician and that, you know, nothing was impossible for Jesus. And so um, he, Jesus said, go, your son is healed. So he took Jesus at his word and, and left and started going back home. And before he even got home on the way, you know, his servants came to him and was like, hey, your son is healed. The fever left him. And he asked what time. And they said, such such a time. He's like, at one in the afternoon, it says, and that was the exact time that Jesus had um, told him that he would be, be healed. And when he realized this, he was astonished. And his whole household um, became believers at that moment because it was just astounding that at the time Jesus gave his word um was the exact hour that it happened and so just seeing these signs and miracles and and you know coming you know to to see more signs and miracles was the initial reason why this nobleman this royal official had come and he heard of these um miracles that Jesus did at, at the wedding and so um wanting to see more um he trusts Jesus enough to to heal his son by faith and 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 begs him, you know, to come to come to his house and and to please heal his son because he's sick and he's gonna die. And Jesus, being this great physician, he's like, "Your son will live at my my word because your faith." And he he rebukes him a little bit, but don't just come to see these signs and wonders. But I'm more than that. Yes, I can heal your son. And, 
And so obviously, you know, when this uh, royal official believed it and seen that it was the exact hour and there was no way for, you know, anyone else to know at what hour Jesus had told him that, but how it was just um, aligned so perfectly at the exact time that this happened, um, he was astonished and he became a believer and so did his whole household. And so we just see how those that do um, believe, and even you know, noblemen and royal officials or Herod's um, relation or even you know Caesar's household, it later tells us in the New Testament, um, they're believers. So there's no one outside God's uh, realm that is um, not able to believe or accept these things by facts. And you know many of these signs and miracles often brought people to them, to him. Uh, Lamentations 4 is another area where we see my God's judgment on the priests and the false teachers, which is kind of a huge theme again, these false prophets and, and corrupt priests. And he says in verse 11, the Lord has given full vent to the wrath and poured out his fierce anger. He kindled the fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. But it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the inequities of her priests, who shed within her the blood of the righteous. Now they grope through the streets as if they are blind. They are so defiled with blood that no one dares to touch their garments. Go away, you are unclean, people cry to them. Away, away, don't touch us. When they flee and wander about, people among the nations say, They can stay here no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. They no long, he no longer watches over them. The priests are shown no honor and the elder no favor. And so we kind of see that God charges them for the sin that they have, this persecution of the innocent, but persecution of the righteous. It's like you shed within you innocent blood. It happened because of the sins of the prophets, those are the fake teachers, false teachers, and the inequity of her priests who shed within her the blood of the righteous. This persecution of the righteous that these, uh, you know, trusted priests and, and, and teachers that are false teachers uh, have corrupted their way and shed God's prophet's blood and not only um, of the innocent, but, but isn't children too who they offered up to Moloch and into fake gods, they offer their children to be burned. And so uh, just blood, innocent blood shed all over the place and just the cruelty of their religion and how vile it had got. It was a sin that God was not going to pardon at this point because, you know, while he did pardon many of them before, it was just an affront to to him and to um, the religion. And so he's like, you condemned and killed the just. And they were the ringleaders in this persecution, the priests and the prophets. And, you know, um, that's just how it was in Jesus' time as well. You know, the chief priests condemned Jesus. And so we kind of see that sometimes the the worst in persecution of the righteous is some of these uh, religious leaders that should have been trustworthy and more commending of the, the righteous, but instead they shed this innocent blood and, you know, put this affront to to the faith and just made it so odious with their bloodied hands and their violence. And he says that, you know, you stray from passive justice and blindly, in the blind essentially, and you were quick to do evil. The judges were corrupt and they didn't understand. They walked in darkness. And these um, corrupt and blind leaders polluted themselves 
would walk around acting like they're so holy that no one could touch them that you're unclean unclean uh get away from us get away from us you can't touch us we're we're too holy for you is what they would tell other people the nations around them and, and gentiles and everyone in between but now it's the nations uh telling them your hands are so full of blood uh we're rising up as a witness against you these pagan nations are and they're saying your hands are so full of blood don't touch us you're defiled you are unclean uh you have defiled yourselves with all your bloodshed and now these um nations around them their neighbors are uh testifying against them themselves and and they're like we'll rise up and and testify to your sin and to your you know impudence and your boastfulness and and how defiled you are and god allows this to happen and and sometimes it's kind of how he uses the wheat in the weeds and to convict some of the people that should have been the most godly god sometimes uses even the foreign neighbors or even quote pagan nations to edify his people that should have been you know his priests and then his people uh, upbraiding of their pretended uh purity their pretended righteousness their pretended holiness that they had which was really none at all it was um ultimate corruption and the blind leading the blind from the the judges that were so corrupt and, and um walking in darkness that would lead everyone else as well into the same path as they had and so god was not happy with that at all and he's like i'll have even the pagan nations rise up against you and testify to uh your unclean hands here and he does and and so sometimes we see how god uses all these um nations peoples bring about his work and bring about ultimate judgment edification and to um, bring about his wrath sometimes restore and to cleanse and to purify when um they have done wrong and gone gone astray and they couldn't really save themselves at this point and their eyes failed their hearts failed for waiting they were getting too weak to contend with the chaldeans that were rising up against them they were um gonna be overtaken and ultimately their own their own doing and god tells them like you have bloodied your your yourself with these violent uh crimes and killing the innocents and the righteous and he doesn't just wink at that he doesn't just slide it under the rug he doesn't just um think like oh you're the you're the priest or you're the, te- the teacher like we'll just let that slide like no he justly and righteously uh rightfully um, does hold them accountable and that's just kind of a good uh reminder that god does expose wickedness and punish sin and he does even use foreigners sometimes to uh put his um people in, in, in the right place and to uh hold them accountable or you know to administer his wrath and you know we see that with the babylonians and habakkuk as well and so it's just kind of like God's ultimate plan sometimes to the weeds there you know don't don't get rid of them and and i'm gonna see if you're gonna be obedient you know i'm gonna see if you're gonna do all that i say joshua you know so sometimes he leaves um leaves to see if you will be obedient and he'll the enemies against you sometimes to make sure you are walking in the right path and ultimately you know condemning the righteous and the innocent thinking yourselves also holy that no one can touch you or come near you when you're offering children to Moloch to be burned and destroying lives. 
there was this um, point in Jeremiah's ministry where the Lord's like, uh, go tell Shemaiah the Nehelamite. This is what the Lord Almighty says, that you sent letters in your own name to all the people in Jerusalem, to the priest Zephaniah and his son Messiah, and to all the other priests. And you said to Zephaniah, the Lord has appointed you priests in place of uh, Jehoda and to be in charge of the house of the Lord. Uh, you should put any maniac who acts like a prophet into the stocks and his neck and irons. And why have you not uh, reprimanded Jeremiah um, from Anatoth yet, who possesses as a who poses as a prophet among you? And he has sent these messages to to us in Babylon, and it will be a long time. Therefore, uh, so build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. And then later, God says, you know, th- this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. He says. Well, before that, he says, you know, surely I'll punish Shemaiah and Nehemite um, and his descendants. He'll have no uh, no one left among the people, nor will he see the good things that I'll do for my people. Um, as he tries to put uh, Jeremiah into um, exile. But next he says, this is what the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, and that's why I have this memoir series here, um, that uh, when I'll bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. And these are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard, terror, not peace. Ask and see, can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Every face hath turned deathly pale. How awful that day will be. No other will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he'll be saved out of it. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I'll break the yoke off the necks and I'll tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they'll serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I raised up for them. So don't be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Don't be dismayed, Israel, declares the Lord. I'll surely save you out of the distant place and your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. I am with you and will save you, declares the Lord. So, you know, God tells... Jeremiah to write this in a book, keep keep track of this, and uh, you know, be astonished in, in terror and fear as every man's uh, hands on their stomach as if they're in labor, and their face is deathly pale, white, if you will. Can a man bear children? Because it's an astounding sight, the barrenness and desolations um, that have happened. Again, Jesus was um walking and talking with his disciples and they came um, to the temple and they called to his attention in this building and they said do you see these things he asked truly I tell you not one stone here will be left on another everyone will be thrown down so they were marveling at the um, amazing um, detail and intricacies and beauty of this temple that was um, made and Jesus was like you see these things how beautiful, amazing these uh, stones are in this temple, I tell you. Uh, there won't be one stone left here that won't be thrown down. And 
essentially, you know, foretell this destruction of this beautiful temple that they couldn't imagine ever being uh, thrown down and destroyed. And he's like, uh, watch out, I tell you. Um, let no one deceive you. Many will come in my name, the claim to be the Messiah, but don't be deceived. You'll deceive many, but when you hear of uh, wars and rumors of wars, see to it that you're not alarmed, because such things must happen, and then the end will come. So it's like, don't be deceived. And he's going to come in my name and pretend that, that he's me or that he has authority to do this or that he's coming in my name to do this, but don't be tricked. He doesn't. And then again, and, you know, she's warns like, hey, I'm telling you now, he who ate my bread uh, is going to betray me. Uh, the the one that was eating my bread all day, uh, he's going to betray me. And I'm telling you this now, before it happens, so that when it happens, you'll know and you'll believe that he, there is a betrayer here. So she just warns them, like, hey, not only did the temple get destroyed and the stones, uh, get demolished one top of another but uh, when someone comes in my name and thinking they have my authority take warning know that they don't I'm telling you this now and uh, be warned that there's a deceiver out there the one that ate my bread so make sure you don't uh, listen to him don't follow his uh, cunning and yet the official asks why is this house of God neglected and I call them together and station them at their post all Jew that brought tithes from of grain, new wine, olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shalemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and the Levite named Padiah in, in charge of the storerooms and hands and Zachor, son of Mataniah, their assistant. So they are considered trustworthy and they made they were made responsible for the duty in distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. So it sounds like they were appointed and put in these stations and at these posts because they're reliable in duty and they could uh, distribute the goods to the Levites. They're appointed. Again, we see God's judgment and God's confronting of sin. In this parable, he tells about this judgment on Jerusalem's uh, sin and he like it to these two sisters and he says this one a holy boss saw this and yet her lust and her prostitution was more depraved than her sister. She lusted after the Assyrians, governors and commanders, warriors, full dress, mounted horsemen, all handsome young men. I saw that she too defiled herself. Both of them went the same way, but she carried her prostitution still further. She saw men portrayed on a wall, figures of Chaldeans portrayed in red with belts around their waists and flowing turbans in their heads. All of them looked like Babylonian chariot officers, natives of Chaldea. And as soon as she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. Then the Babylonians came to her to the bed of love, and in there they lusted, in their lust they defiled her. And after she had been defiled by them, she turned away from them in disgust. And when she carried on her prostitution openly and exposed her naked body, I turned away from her in disgust just that I turned away from her sister. Yet she became more and more promiscuous, and she recalled the days of her youth when she was a prostitute in Egypt. There she lusted after her lo lovers with genitals like those of a donkey and whose emission was like that of a horse. So you long for the lewdness of your youth when you were in Egypt. 
Your bosom was caressed and your young breast fondled. Therefore, O holy love, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will stir up your lovers against you and those who turn away from you in disgust. I will bring them against you from every side. The Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, the Menopecot, Shoah and Koah, and all the Assyrians with them, handsome young men, all the governors and commanders, chariot officers, and men of high rank, all mounted on horses, they will come against you with weapons and chariots and wagons and will throng. And with a throng of people, they will take up positions against you on every side with large and small shields and helmets. I will turn you over to them for punishment, and they will punish you according to your standards. I will direct my jealous anger against you, and they will deal with you in a furry. They will cut off your noses and your ears and those of you who are left will fall by the sword. They will take away your sons and your daughters, and those who are left will be consumed by fire. They will strip you of your clothes, they will take your fine jewelry, and they will put a stop to your lewdness and your prostitution that began in Egypt. And you will look on these things with longing. You will not look on these things with longing or remember Egypt anymore. So we see once again that God uses these um, enemies or these um, people that he leaves um, around. Maybe the foreigners, the Chaldeans, the of Assyrians, these enemies of, of Jerusalem at the time. And use them to administer his wrath and his judgment when they were misbehaving, when they were immoral or idol-worshipping or unfaithful to God. And so God says that you will deal with them in, in hatred and take away everything that you've worked for and leave you stark naked. Like his judgment is real and he'll deliver deliver you over to your enemies or even to enemies to um, administer his justice and his wrath. And so... His judgment is, is real and is true and he does punish evil, he does punish wrong and he does punish those that um, might uh, be self-righteous and, and think um, you know, highly of themselves and God will bring that to light and he will punish us and all those that do go astray and all those that go against his word and go against what um, he says. And so um, we see this picture of um, a holy bond in her prostitution and defiling himself, herself with these Chaldeans and, and men um, portrayed on the walls and these images and um, just uh, idolatry. Idolatry and adultery that have been going on here and take heed because you think you stand and, and God will, will um, bring to light and administer and his just wrath and his judgment on all those that do go astray and all those that do uh, practice their wickedness. Well, just to wrap up our lesson, to tie our questions back together, ultimately the wheat and the weeds and the identity and the destination of both, and what does that um, reveal about God's judgment between believers and unbelievers, as well as um, how might the promised blessings and the sobering truth in this parable impact how you interact with people around you? And I think um, we, you know, went over that in, in great depth in our lesson today, but Ultimately, just one clothing statement from James 3. We see that with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, 
Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So ultimately, you know, the tongue is a restless evil and a deadly poison and no man can tame the tongue, but we can't praise our Lord, you know, and curse human beings made in his image at the same time. So just be mindful that all humanity is made in his image and um, let us have the understanding to show it by our, our good deeds and do them in humility and in the humility of this wisdom that's from above, not bitter envy, not selfish ambition, not, you know, um, denying the truth that, you know, doesn't come from above. That's demonic and unspiritual wisdom of the world, having selfish ambitions and, and evil desires. And you'll find every vile practice, every disorder um, will be found in that. But the wisdom that comes from above, it's first pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So God was just placing that passage on my mind um, for how we should treat uh, those that um, ultimately are the wheat and the weeds. And, you know, we, we can't curse ultimately someone made in God's image. That should not be. And just be mindful that you know, wisdom from above is peace-loving and, and merciful and considerate, not envious, not not selfish, not um, destructive like that. So keep that in mind next time you see someone that might um, not be a believer or might be um, someone that you think is so far from God or someone that you think might be beyond God's grace of saving. Uh, you, you should be um, uh, sowing a, a harvest of peace among them all the more and you should exercise godly wisdom and you know show the love of christ and the humility of that of that wisdom and in your deeds so that is a a sobering truth um that i've learned from these these passages so um maybe contend all the more for the faith well i hope you guys enjoyed doing that uh bible study with me today i had a great time just being in God's word together and just seeing um the depths of his wisdom and his his um glory and and, and all his lessons and all his words so thank you for taking the time to study the Bible, the Bible with me and if you want uh we'll go ahead and close in prayer Father God thank you so much for your lessons they're so timely always and thank you so much for um being our teacher for your infinite wisdom and your infinite grace and glory it is written, you will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent you will frustrate. So Lord, thank you for being um, the, the epitome of wisdom and for the ultimate washing and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You, by your grace, we became heirs. And so help us to just remember that you renew us. You gave us rebirth and uh, we are heirs with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.